Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done, and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in today from Philip. Phillips writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I love the show. Do you have any idea what the price breakdown for the RTL 308 RTL 310 is? I've tried contacting the company, but they've yet to respond. Thanks in advance, Philip. Well, Philip, it's interesting you ask that because I, too, have been trying to get in contact with them and getting pricing ever since I've mentioned their uh, Linux-powered tablet and their Linux-powered phone on their website. And in my case, they did get back to me. They just didn't give me pricing information. They just sent me a link back to the product and the specifications, which I already saw and which I was already familiar with. So I, too, am waiting on pricing. To be honest with you, um, though I, I pay real close attention to how I'm treated initially, especially when I'm interested in buying something. The best, Theoretically, the best uh, uh, service you're ever going to get is when they're trying to get you hooked, when they're trying to sell the product. If they have trouble getting back to you today before you've actually spent any money with them, what are the chances that they're going to be able to get back to you when you have a problem or with if there's an issue with the device? And so I, I haven't responded to them yet. I've not reached out again. I, I want to see how long it takes, uh, if they ever respond, those kinds of things. And that will, to a certain degree, impact my decision. I basically narrowed it down to one of two devices. Um, the RTL uh, Linux-powered phone or um, tablet and probably the phone version or uh, the GPD Pocket, which now that they're used and for sale on eBay, it's getting easier and easier to source those. And uh, that gives me a true mobile Linux experience in my pocket. And so either one of those would really work, but that's kind of where I'm at. So if I hear pricing, you'll hear about it here on the show. Just keep checking back. Our second email comes in from Jordan. Jordan writes in and says, hi, Noah. Recently, I had a networking problem where a device stopped being able to connect to the Internet. Uh, I stepped through the stack one layer at a time to see what the problem was. First, I tried pinging ddg.gg, and I got a DNS timeout. If I ping 1.1.1.1, I also got network unreachable. On a hunch, I thought, I wonder if I can even ping the router. So I got the router's IP address with IP route and then tried pinging 10.x.x.1, which pings the router. It also timed out. On another hunch, I wondered what would happen if I grabbed a new DHCP address from the router. So I did with sudo DHCP client tac r, and suddenly the device is able to connect to the internet again. Do you have any idea what might have happened here? What should I research to better understand this? Thanks for the wealth of knowledge as always, Jordan. So obviously, without being able to step through the troubleshooting myself, it'd be very difficult to know for sure. But here would be a couple of guesses. Anytime you get a DHCP address from your router, a couple of things are happening. 
the address is, is, is taken by the computer. But the other thing that's happening is a very important part of this is the switch that you're connected to, even if it's a switch that's built into like an all-in-one cable modem, this is still going to, to exist, there is an address resolution protocol uh, or ARP table that exists inside of the device. And so what that's doing is it's, it's, it's correlating the MAC address of where it thinks the device is uh, to the switch port uh, where it thinks the device is. Excuse me, the MAC address of the device to the switch part of where it thinks the device is. And sometimes you can get what's known as a stale ARP entry. And so it will try to contact that device's MAC address on the wrong switch port. And so you can either clear the ARP cache or you can restart the switch. Either one of those will bring it back. It occurs to me that if you if you uh, if you requested a new DHCP address uh, and the switch had to do a lookup and say, OK, well, what? Uh, Mac address is, you know, has this IP address and, 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 and refresh that table. That could be a, could potentially be a solution to your issue. So again, wouldn't really know for sure. I'm kind of stabbing in the dark there, but, um, I would start with things like turn it off, turn it back on and see if those kinds of things resolve it. If, if it does and you know which device you restarted to get the resolution, that's kind of where you dig in a little bit further. Great question. And certainly other people will write in. Uh, with potential answers as well, which would be helpful. Lucas writes in in our third email and says, Hi, Noah. Once again, thanks for the amazing work you do for the community. I'm preparing to move my company out of Gmail. Trying the Google Takeout tool gives me an inbox file that contains flat email structures. In other words, I have no folders, just Google labels. This is, of course, problematic for large mailboxes like 200 gigabytes with as many labels and sublabels. Is there any known tool that uh, that can manage importing all of the mailboxes to an IMAP server or converting labels to the full folder structure. Thanks, Lucas. So off the top of my head, I am not familiar with any such tool. I will open it to an interactive matrix room, which you can join by going to geeklab.ninja. Join the chat room there. You can sign up for a free account and interact with our uh, voice and video platform, uh, Jitsi. Have you guys, has anybody moved from Gmail? And if so, have has anybody found a way to organize the inbox file that, that, that is available to you in Google Takeout? No. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is that um, the way Google represents the stuff inside of Gmail is represented differently internally versus what it actually exposes you to the UI or through the API bridge for IMAP. The the way that I've uh, that I've helped other people make the move from Gmail to other platforms is um, I basically have them connect through IMAP or POP3 or whatever through insec- setting up the app password and connecting Thunderbird or whatever to sync all the mail down and then using Thunderbird to export a more structured inbox file. If you use the takeout, you'll get the emails in their raw form. You won't get any of the filtering or structures that you've implemented in Gmail because those are actually constructed on the fly when you make API requests to Gmail. So here's what I, here's, here's my takeaway from that. My takeaway from that is simply this. If you're going to use a proprietary service, then you should understand what is possible for data import and export. You know, part of the problem is this is where we run into issues with not using interoperable standards. If there was a standard folder structure done through IMAP, it would work on things like FastMail and Office and, and Gmail and, and so on and so forth. It's when Google has gets a bright idea uh, and uh, for colorful hairs and decides, hey, here's what we're going to do. Uh, if that's not... 
an open accepted standard, then it's going to be very difficult to implement that outside of that particular platform. So again, if it'll go out over the air. And so if there's somebody out there that has an idea of how to import mailbox to another IMAP folder and convert those Google labels, we would be interested. You can send those to live at asknoahshow.com. I would sure appreciate it. And so would Lucas. Our uh, fourth email comes in today from Biku. And Biku writes in and says, hi there, Noah. I'm a, I'm a new listener here for some unknown reason. I decided on episode number 226 is my first podcast from you today. As a refresher for all of those of you who are listening, episode 226 is the episode that we did with uh, Steve Ovens talking about uh, networking basics. And uh, so Baku continues by saying, a listener named James mentioned that his problem with a BCM 4354 Wi-Fi card is not working on newer kernels. I have bad news for James. It seems that support for this hardware was dropped in kernel 4.1 and later. Here's my source. Any links to wireless.wiki.kernel.org slash user slash driver slash B, uh, BRCM80211. Now, during the show, you and Steve talked a little bit about troubleshooting common internet connectivity problems. I've now written a bash script a while back to test and diagnose common internet connectivity issues. I've been using it for some time and it gets the job done most of the time. I put it up in GitHub. I would love your feedback on it. So here's a link to github.com slash hacker defo slash check dash my dash net. Thanks for the lovely podcast. Please keep up the great work. Biku. And we'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. So make sure to check that out. We certainly will. And we'll, uh, we'll give your script a try and see, see what we think of it. Our pick of the week this week is webcatalog.app. So this is a website that turns any website into a real desktop app. And so it gets you access to thousands of exclusive apps for Mac, PC, and Linux and allows you to work more productively and forget about switching apps or at tabs. Excuse me. This is one of those things. Yes, we live in a world and I say it all the time. The moving things over to a web browser has really reset people's expectations of computing. And in a large way, for those of us that work on alternative operating system, this turns out to be a very good thing because it allows us to take advantage of the fact that app developers are already having to target multiple platforms. No longer can they just say, if we get it to Windows, we'll get it to 90% of the world. Well, maybe, but now you have Apple iOS and you have Android users and you have a substantial portion on, on, on Macs. And now you do start to have Linux users in the way of Chromebooks and Linux desktop proper, so on and so forth. And so it behooves companies when they're going to roll something out to roll it out as a web app. Additionally, because it's a web app, it's typically more culturally acceptable than to charge a monthly fee because it's really a service, access to a service rather than a thing that you buy once. And so slowly you're noticing that even software manufacturers that were writing software locally for the PC, places like Microsoft Office have over time started to switch uh, to subscription apps, software as a service. And so as that happens, um, we get those apps on Linux because we can run all of the major browsers. So uh, webcatalog.app is, is a way to get access to a lot of those apps and run them on your Mac PC or Linux desktop. And so they have things like Discord, Gmail, Google Calendar. Uh, I don't know what the Apple app is. Group Apple? Not sure what that is. Um, Microsoft, they have uh, Pantext, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, Google Voice. Uh, looks like the Apple one is Apple web apps all in one place. So I'm not sure if uh, – I'm, I'm not an Apple user, so you'd have to check that out. But the idea here is if you're one of those people who says, 
I want to make the switch to the Linux desktop, especially when we tell you what we've discovered about Windows 11, what we know about it. You may get to a point where you say to yourself, self, I am no no longer at a place where I can continue to use my Mac OS or Windows PC. And so I'm going to switch over to Linux. You might say that because a lot of the apps that you use just are delivered as web apps. But what you'll find, it becomes cumbersome and frustrating to live entirely inside of a web browser. And so it's nice to be able to break some of those out into at least separate windows. Uh, and, and so this is a, another way to do that. So we invite you to check out web app, webcatalog.app. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Get it podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week this week actually comes in from a listener. The listener is Brett from Florida, and he wrote in to say that he listens to the show and there was someone that was asking about a conference room setup, and he recommended the Logitech Rally Plus. Now, I have never seen or, or played with the Logitech Rally Plus, but when he sent it in, I started checking it out, and I'm blown away. So it's a little expensive, so this would not be for the faint of heart, but for what you're getting, it's absolutely well worth the price. Uh, it's $2,500, and it comes with what appears to be a PTZ camera. It comes with uh, dual speakers and mic pods that you can set up around uh, the room to capture the, the speakers. The entire thing interfaces with your computer with a single USB uh, interface, and the camera system delivers 4K resolution. And so you're going to get a really solid camera. They claim it's a 90-degree field of view with an, a 15x zoom. Uh, again, that PTZ camera, and then the speakers and the microphones. It's all included as uh, as one kit, and then you just plug the HDMI cable into your television and plug or into the excuse me uh, into the television and plug your uh, the remote control and the speakers and the mic pods and and the whole system connects to your computer then via a a Type C cable, and uh, it supports automatic camera control, uh, a display hub with speaker systems. Um, the light and color optimization, adaptive pan, tilt, and zoom, and multiple installation options. So you can have it on a table, you can mount it uh, to the wall, you can attach it to a Visa-compatible display. All of all of those things are are there. Now, they don't officially support Linux. They, out of the box, they officially support Windows 7, 8.110, Mac OS, and Chrome OS. However, obviously, underneath the hood, Chrome OS is uh, really Linux anyway, so I suspect that the drivers are there also Every Logitech product I've ever purchased has worked flawlessly out of the box with Linux. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would highly in, invite you to check uh, this out. He, the, the, um, Brett from Florida says that they use it with Microsoft Teams, so it works with any program on the computer. And so if you're looking for an all-in-one conference and you don't want to piece it together, um, which is what I've typically done, um, you could go with the Logitech Rally Plus. One, one thing I would say uh, in relationship to the guy who was asking about it, my, my advice still stands true. You know, if you purchase something like this and you want to replace it, like you want to upgrade the speakers in the room, eventually you get some money where you have a reason to say, hey, we're going to put in some really high quality speakers. You don't really have that option if it's all in one. If you want to upgrade the camera or maybe you want multiple cameras and you eventually want to go to a thing that can switch between the cameras. Again, not so possible if it's an all-in-one system. Same thing with microphones. If it's a standard XLR mic and you don't like the boundary microphone, you can go opt for a better microphone or you can get individual pedo, you know, pedestal mics for every conference participant around the table. Those options quickly leave the room um, when it's an all-in-one proprietary system, which this certainly is. Uh, but the positives are that it's an all-in-one unit. It plugs in over USB. It will all work together and 
the other thing is Logitech is going to do some basic testing to ensure that they stay below the vast majority of the USB bandwidth limitations that they would otherwise run into. And that's going to help uh, because you're not piecing together, piecemealing a bunch of equipment from a bunch of different manufacturers. And then when something doesn't work, who do you go to? Um, so this is more of a quote unquote supported solution. Um, so make sure to check that out again. We'll have links for you for all of this stuff in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. First in the news this week, Mix has a new release. 2.3.0 has been released. Now, I've not talked about Mix in a while. I'm not sure how much I've mentioned it on this program, but Mix is one of my absolute favorite programs. A few years back, it was a real staple for us at Alta Speed Technologies. Obviously, since the pandemic, this is kind of weaned down, but Mix is a DJ software. It allows you to play live music uh, in front of a live audience. And so what you might think of as, hey, if I just had a playlist inside a VLC, that does everything that I would want it to do, right? And, you know, you can get there. It's acceptable. There's probably a, a large majority of people that wouldn't really notice if it was just a playlist running on, on VLC. But Mix's true DJ software, uh, and what it allows you to do is do things like match the beats per minute from one song to the next. And so you can slightly slow down uh, one song or slightly speed the, the song back up. And what that allows you to do is get a nice, consistent transition, particularly if you're using tracks that have been put together by other, mus- uh, by other musicians specifically designed uh, to be played inside of clubs and weddings and stuff like that. And they'll typically give you, at the end of the song... The song will go out and it will give you just a basic beat that you can match up to the basic beat on the intro of the next track. And to the listener out in the audience, it sounds like one continuous track. Um, But you need software to do that. You need software that can, one, interface with a piece of hardware that can control all of this so that it's more fluid and easier to drag your hand on the side of the on the side of the uh, platters to, to, to either slow down or speed up the music. Mix does this. So 2.3 is, is, a, is a fairly decent release. I've been playing with it for a while. Uh, it, it, it allows you to set your hot cues with colors and labels, mark the intro and outro sections of your track. So this is, you know, you have, like I say, that little intro beat, but you want to know where the actual song begins so you know how much time you have uh, to do beat match and, and all of those kinds of things. And so those that color... Uh, and those sections allow you to know, hey, this is the th- this is the this is the part where it's going to drop, or this is the part where I want to pump up the volume a little bit, or this is the part where I want all the lights to go off and the strobes to fire, and those kinds of things. Um, and so, being able to see that and have those visual cues is super helpful. Their new multi-threaded analysis is more accurate for key detection and improves preparation process further. So, when you're mixing songs, oftentimes what you'll do is you'll try and find songs that are close to the same key or just a couple steps off so that you can pitch bend and again try to create that as smooth of an experience as you can for the listener so mix 2.3 comes with a new default skin they're calling it late night and it underwent a massive redesign replaces the deer as the default skin so make sure to check out the screenshots page you can find those at mix m-i-x-x-x dot org now if you're a record box or sorrento user now these are uh, at least sorrento is a is a is a piece of software that's commonly shipped with the hardware controllers and you're switching to mix, the mix has become a lot easier in this regard because now you can play tracks directly from USB drives that have a record box or Sorrento libraries. Um, so, and again, I'm always, I'm always pleasantly surprised, impressed and, and delighted when a company that manufactures software takes the time to be backwards compatible with other industry software. One of the reasons that everybody uses Microsoft Office today is because yesterday Microsoft Office was backwards compatible with Lotus 123. Had they not done that, there's a good chance that Lotus would have remained the 
dominant spreadsheet application. But because Excel was backwards compatible, uh, Microsoft was able to steal, not steal, earn that uh, that market domain from from Lotus. Uh, Mix has also added support for recording and streaming in the Opus and HEAAC codecs. Uh, they introduced cloning and polishing the library and preferences. So to break that down, why that matters and why that's an exciting feature, um, when you have uncompressed audio, it's fantastic. And that's certainly what you want to use when you're, uh, when you're live and when you're, when you're connected to just an amplifier and speakers and subs and whatnot, right? You want to play the highest quality music you can. The problem becomes oftentimes, particularly this, we see this a lot in weddings, uh, they will want to stream the uh, the wedding or they want to stream the event. Now, in the case of the wedding, we wouldn't be able to stream directly from Mix because it's not just the music that they want to hear. Obviously, uh, they want the video to accompany it. However, if you're in a broadcast environment or you run an Internet radio station or those kinds of things, those are the times where streaming becomes uh, super important. And so both the Opus and H HEAAC are are advantageous for for different reasons. So I'll start with with HEAAC. AAC is one of the one of the best sounding codecs out there, and it was originally designed as a replacement for MP3. They had we have MP3, and MP3 sounds okay at best, um, but just doesn't really sound that great. And so AAC sounds much much better for the same amount of bandwidth. And so in broadcast, we broadcast industry is almost universally adopted. AAC is the Kodak for going back and forth. At least they had for a while. And, and the idea behind that was is you could get a much higher quality audio uh, in the same amount of bandwidth that y in, in less bandwidth than you would take to do an MP3 and certainly less bandwidth than it would require to do like an uncompressed wave. But you get closer to the quality of wave than you would uh, from MP3. Now, HEAAC is the high efficiency version of AAC. And so they have AAC, um, uh, uh, low latency. There's, there's three versions. There's, there's a low latency AAC version. There's the high efficiency AAC. And then there's the plain AAC is the three most common ones. And so the high efficiency AAC gets again, very close to the same quality. And presumably it would be somewhat indistinguishable from lossless, uh, to the average listener. Um, but in even less bandwidth than traditional AAC with even slightly less latency. Uh, and so this was this and in addition to that, they introduced deck cloning and abolished the library and preferences, including the controller workflow. Now, one of the most important things for any piece of software that interfaces with hardware is, of course, the hardware that it supports. And so they now have out of the box support for the Pioneer DG, DDJ 200, DG, DDJ 400, Native Instruments Tractor Console S3, the Hercules DJ Control, the Impulse 200, the Jog Vision and the Roland DJ505, the Behringer B-Control, BCR2000, the DDM4000, and the Ion Discover DJ Pro, as well as the Newmark DJ Live 2. Uh, and so they've also updated a couple of the existing controller mappings and received some fixes and new features. So, uh, make sure if, even if you're, even if you have no interest in be, in, in, in being a DJ, uh, or, 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 uh, or playing with that kind of stuff, I highly invite you to check out Mix just as a, just from the standpoint that this is a piece of open source software that does what it does really, really well to the point that I feel very comfortable walking into a room with people that are using proprietary alternatives and saying, hey, this is what we use in our system. There are some things that uh, leave something to be desired when when you're making the trade for open source. And so I, I still go with it because at the end of the day, I still don't want to be slave to a 
proprietary software vendor. I still want to be able to make my own decisions. Mix just happens to be a case where it is a phenomenal product that just happens to be open source. Um, I want to say one, th- one last thing I want to add. The, the other streaming option they have is Opus. And I said there were two. Previously, broadcast industry had relied heavily on AAC. I see more and more things moving to Opus. In fact, a lot of the broadcast hardware manufacturers, if they're using an encoding algorithm now, are using Opus by default. And Opus, if you're not familiar with it, is an open source audio codec that uh, delivers exceptionally high audio quality and is baked right into most web browsers. And so if you've ever used like WebRTC engine, you're using Opus underneath. And so it's going to sound really good and it's open source, so you don't have to worry about the lock-in. Hey, Blender is out with an announcement. They're partnering with Canonical to provide official support. So in the last few months, Blender and Canonical have had extensive discussions, and that ultimately resulted in a decision to enter a partnership. Now, Canonical's mission uh, is to empower the open source institutions. And so this, of course, perfectly aligns with Blender's need to remain independent and their focus on making an amazing 3D uh, software. So Canonical has agreed that they're going to be building out and maintaining their own Blender services organization. It's going to be based in their Ubuntu advanced platform, uh, which allows support for Ubuntu and revenues from that service. They're then going to share back, at least partly, are going to be invested in the Blender core development as well as public support for the LTS releases. Aside from linking to Canonical service, uh, on Blender.org, there really is no obligation from Blender to participate in these service contracts. And so from Canonical, quote, it's a privilege to support Blender and the fantastic work of this remarkable community, its founders and leaders. Today's announcement strengthens Blender with a full service Canonical support and long-term security maintenance and delivers the level of assurance that professional Blender content creators will need. In partnership with the Blender Foundation, shares Mar- CEO Mark Shuttleworth. So, Where you get to with this and why this is really fantastic is if you're a company and you're sitting down and considering doing 3D modeling or doing animation and somebody comes to you and says, well, instead of using software XYZ, I want to use Blender. What's Blender? Well, Blender is an open source uh, tool for creating 3D animation. How well does it work? Really well. Check it out. Here's what I can do. Here's some examples. Oh, that's really cool. Is it easy to learn? Is it, does, are there tutorials available? Is there decent support? Well, yeah, there's a lot of tutorials available and yeah, there's a lot of education and community around it. What do you mean by support? Well, if we're going to switch our whole company over to this and we're going to be, we're, we're an animation software company or we rely heavily on it for our revenue, uh, what do we do when something breaks? Who do we get support from? Well, I can post in the forums and they have an IRC. Yeah. Who do we get support from? Who do we pay for? Right. That's a question that most companies ask. And I, I've been sitting at the other end of that table and have had to provide answers to this. Now, in my case, typically the answer is we have people on staff that can help you with that. And that typically satisfies uh, most most companies. But if again, if if this is a major portion of your revenue stream and you're looking at going all in on a piece of software, you're going to want a company to back that up. Now, Blender may or may not be at the at the size today that they could support something like that. Um, but Canonical certainly is. Canonical, to its credit, also has a track history of providing support for the Ubuntu operating system. And so they're already positioned to be able to say, hey, if you need something, we are, we're familiar with negotiating contracts. We're familiar with uh, providing the support and having a, a process for it. And so Canonical sees the writing on the wall. They look at Blender and say, this is one of the most successful open source products out there and professionals all over the place from people that are just getting into 3D animation 
to people that have been doing it for years have now started to use Blender. And even people that use, you know, the 3DS Max products and stuff like that, a lot of those people, when they come home, are doing stuff on Blender because it becomes a nice place to live when you just want access to a piece of software that doesn't cost tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and so Canonical found a way to add value to an existing open source ecosystem. And of course, this highly benefits Blender as well, because now Blender has the ability of saying, yeah, we do have professional support. Now, I'm sure Canonical probably keeps the majority of those funds, which they should since they're doing the majority of the work. Uh, but this provides a, a number of advantages to Blender, not just in the step from the standpoint that they're able to more effectively market Blender as a professional tool that that professionals can feel comfortable using in production. The other side of that, though, is it's a real-time feedback mechanism, right? Because when somebody comes and opens a case with Canonical and says, hey, I have this issue, and I can you fix this for me? And Canonical goes through and remotes in or asks some clarifying questions and eventually decides that, well, actually, this turns out this is going to be an upstream issue. This is something we're going to kick back to Blender. Now there's a direct relationship with the company that's doing the support, with the company that's building the software, and the company that is is providing the support is not necessarily responsible for doing anything. They're really just responsible for getting the proper information back to the proper people. And so I think this is a fantastic uh, partnership for both Blender and Canonical, and I wish them the best. Uh, I think that it won't be long before you start to see uh, more and more market penetration of Blender. I saw just a few years ago, there was an entire movie released that was a uh, full production movie was released on Blender or produced on Blender. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of those open source tool that again, kind of stands out from the crowd. Hey, the Linux foundation issued a press release saying that they're introducing the open voice network. And this is to prioritize trust and interoperability in a voice based digital future. So they're targeting the Amazon Alexas of the world. They are targeting uh, all the little voice assistants. And so the open voice network is an open source association dedicated to advancing the open standards that support the adoption of AI enabled voice assistant systems. Now, on the surface, much with everything at the Linux Foundation, it seems like there's always a good side and a bad side. The, the, the positive side is, yes, there are absolutely organizations that want more control. They want to be able to control the experience. They want to be able to tune the experience. They want to be able to customize the experience. And so rather than saying, go buy Amazon's product and install our app on it and then use the Amazon product to access us, they want to be able to have that relationship directly with the customer. It also allows them to customize what the voice sounds like, how the voice responds, what the capabilities of the voice thing are. But there has to be some sort of way for all of those, to, unless they all want to invent their own, there has to be some sort of shared way for all of them to do that. And that's essentially what OVN tries to create. Uh, but the most important thing, and this was articulated by the Linux Foundation themselves, is there are many organizations that know they have to be able to protect the information that flows through voice. You can't just have everything that you do running through Amazon. Now that's fine if you're a home user and you're, you're telling your lady in the tube to tell you, a, tell you a, make a fart noise or something, right? It's not such a big deal. But when you work at a large company and you're dealing with potentially proprietary information or proprietary secrets, and now you want to integrate, uh, or, or utilize your voice to be able to control things and, and do things, well, maybe you don't want that data flowing through Amazon. Maybe you don't want that data flowing through Google. And so, there has to be another way. 
So Target is one of the organizations that has been looking at this. Quote, at Target, we're continually exploring and embracing new technologies that can help provide joyful, easy, and convenient experiences for our guests. We look forward to working with the open voice network community to create global standards that share best practices and enable businesses to accelerate innovation in this space and help better serve customers. That comes from Joel Crabb, the vice president of architecture from the Target Corporation. And this is a perfect example, right? If you wanted to put little things on all of the aisles so you could walk up and say, I need help. I'm looking for blah, blah, blah. And the voice assistant thinks for a second, comes back and says, the product you're looking for is two aisles down and on shelf three or whatever, right? That's something that would absolutely benefit and serve Target customers better. Probably not in Target's best interest to make sure all of that data is flowing through Amazon because then Amazon looks at it and goes, oh, everybody looks for baby wipes and they pay twenty three ninety nine because everybody keeps asking the voice assistant how much are baby wipes and it's twenty three ninety nine at, at Target. And so we should sell it for cheap. You know, that kind of stuff is stuff that Target and Amazon it potentially could directly compete with each other on. So it stands to reason that they wouldn't be interested in uh, in working through a Google or an Amazon that they would want to own that technology themselves or at least participate in one that doesn't have a competing business interest. Now, the voice assistant depends on a number of different technologies, mainly automatic speech recognition, natural language processing and advanced dialogue management and machine learning. So the open voice network is going to be initially focused on on a couple of areas, standard development, so research and recommendations towards the standard that are going to enable people to make their own choices and trust the platform and uh, work without having to be tied to a third service. Industry value and awareness, so the identification and sharing of controversial AI best practices uh, and how to scale both horizontal, horizontally and vertically. Uh, inside of industries, serving the source of insight and value for those voice assistants. And then finally, advocacy, and that's working uh, with the existing industry associations on, regu- on, on regulatory stuff and legislative stuff uh, to include data privacy. So again, one of those things where I look at the Linux Foundation and say, the good part about this is that we absolutely do need an open alternative to um, the, the, the Googles and the Amazons of the world. I kind of question why they're not just focusing on the Mycroft project or making that project better. It seems like, again, we're back to not invented here, although I can kind of understand uh, they're looking at developing a set of standards. They're not looking at, at any one individual product. Now, here's the downside. The Linux Foundation tends to attract very large investors, and the good side of that is I suppose it takes that kind of money to get a lot of these projects off the ground. The downside is... Some of these companies are not the kind of companies you want directing the technology that's going to power us for the next few years. Target, Schwartz Group, uh, Wigman's Food Markets, Microsoft, Veritone, and uh, the Deutsche Telekom. So interesting stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes and what kind of products come out of it. I am happy to see that the Linux Foundation is slowly working its way into mainstream industry. And so recognizable day-to-day stores are going to be working with a company or an organization that at least um, that that values open source and freedom, and hopefully they have a, a strong take on privacy or continue to have a strong take on privacy. The use of surveillance planes in Baltimore to track people's movements uh, without a warrant, uh, a judge has ruled as a violation of 
people's Fourth Amendment rights. So this is this comes from a federal appeals court uh, on Thursday. In the case, it revolved around an air surveillance program run by the Baltimore Police Department called Aerial Investigation Research, commonly abbreviated AIR. And beginning in 2016, BPBD announced that it would be using cameras attached to planes to conduct aerial surveillance to help fight crime. The program was discontinued in response to public anger over the snooping, but in 2019, the program returned as AIR. The city approved the contract between BPD and a private company in t- April of 2020. So during daylight hours, they had planes, and these planes would just fly over the city, and they would record images of all of the outdoor activity for about 90% of Baltimore. Uh, the images were stored and they could be used to track the movement of individuals connected to a particular crime. So homicides, carjackings, armed robberies, those kinds of things. The key function here, if you read through the legal brief, was that they didn't request a warrant to go back through the data. And that's where the judge basically said, no, this is a lot like the 28 Supreme Court decision, Carpenter versus U.S., And that decision held that warrantless tracking of people via their cell phones uh, using location data violated their Fourth Amendment right. And so in that opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that, quote, a person does not surrender all Fourth Amendment rights protected by venturing into the public sphere. That explanation is used here by the Fourth uh, Circuit Court to explain why BPD can't use aerial surveillance data for that same purpose, quote, Carpenter solidified the line between short-term tracking and public movements akin to what law enforcement could do prior to the digital age and prolonged traffic, prolonged tracking rather, excuse me, can reveal intimate details through habits and patterns. Gregory wrote the latter form of surveillance invades the reasonable expectation of privacy that individuals have in the whole of their life movement and therefore requires a warrant. So if you're on our side of the pond, if you're on the U S side of the pond, then you look at this as a major victory because what is happening here is we are finally starting to evaluate privacy in a digital age the same by the same standards that we held privacy before there was a digital age. In other words, unless I have a reason to go looking, I can't go looking. And we have skirted that for a long, long time in this country, and it's still being skirted in other countries and in the form of metadata. And the idea that if people don't really know that they're being tracked or that it's owned by the cell phone company, so it's third-party data, so as long as they get permission from them, then it's fine. You know, they've got all of these ways to justify why it's not violating people's privacy. But at the end of the day, it's very much violating people's privacy. So I was happy to see that this got struck down. Now, you can bet in, you can bet that this is going to be fought again and again. In fact, uh, I don't have it in my show notes, but part of the research that I did on this was uh, referenced – The Baltimore Police Department's attempt to try to get the case dismissed entirely once that once it went to the once it went to the court, they said, yeah, we don't know if we want to do this because if the court rules against us, then it actively will shut not just us down, but other law enforcement agencies around the country from doing similar things. So they tried to at the last minute, tried to get the whole thing thrown out so that at least there wouldn't be a ruling against them. They failed. The ruling was against them. And so now a judge is going to have to go back and counteract that. But that seems unlikely as this seems to be perfectly in line with the Supreme Court's decision from just uh, a few years ago in 2018. So good job, Baltimore Police Department. Uh, would you pay for pri- for a privacy search engine, uh, especially if it was written by the people who formerly worked at Google? Well, Navia is, in, is a new search engine that officially launched today, and it carries a subscription fee. 
it's extremely similar to Google in many respects, and that is to be expected because the people who invented Neva came from Google. They're former Google execs. Uh, it dumps the web giant's venerable ad-based business model in the interest of avoiding distractions, privacy and quandaries, and other compromises. Now, it's free for three months, and that's long enough for you to log into it, get accustomed to it, see what it works, and there isn't much obligation. Then after that, it's only five bucks a month. They have apps for iPhones, iPads, browser extensions for Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and Edge, and Brave. Uh, and so they're looking to answer this question. If there was a high-quality product that clearly benefited you, the consumer, would you pay for it? Would you put your money where your mouth is? Everybody says that they're sick of Google tracking them. Everybody says that they're sick of of Google invading their privacy and selling their data. But at the end of the day, do you have any idea how much money it probably costs Google to run Google? Even if you forgot all of the other things that the Alphabet Corporation does and you just focused on the search engine, think about the astronomical cost it would be to operate Google. That's how big of a company they are. And so when you, when, if, we, if we mean what we say, when we say, hey, we really want privacy alternatives, then stuff like this should quickly attract our attention and should quickly be something that we should evaluate and look at and see if this is the direction we want to go down. Now, I'll be the first to say I'm a DuckDuckGo user. I have it set as my default browser or default search engine on my computer. Is it the only search engine I use? No. Sometimes if I can't find what I'm looking for on DuckDuckGo, I'll absolutely bounce over to Google and see if they have what I need. But oftentimes I can get by with DuckDuckGo and it works just fine. Uh, and that's a free service. And it's been around for 13 years, so they have a, an established track history. And I like products with an established track history. So Neva doesn't have an established track history yet, but I've checked them out a little bit. The UI is a straight-up straight ripoff of Google, founded by Google execs, and designed with privacy in mind. They're upfront with how they're going to make money. They're going to charge you per month. Cost you 50 bucks a year. Um, so yeah, I'm going to check it out for three months. Neva, N-E-E-V-A.com, N-E-E-V-A.com. I'm going to check it out. I'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's a rare day that we spend a lot of time on anything Windows related on this show. However, when it's a reason not to, if it, when it's even more reasons not to use Windows and more reasons to come over to the Linux world, or if you were thinking about making that jump, uh, then we have to talk about it. And so Windows 11 is out. If you've not heard that, Microsoft promised that Windows 10 was going to be the last version of Windows 10, last version of Windows, and they were just going to roll updates. There were rumors that Windows X, 10X was going to come out, which nobody was really sure of. It was like a variant of Windows. Maybe it was going to be for tablets, something like that. We weren't real sure. Uh, and then they announced Windows 11, and they just took some of the stuff that came uh, that they were developing with Windows 10X and rolled it into Windows 11. Now, we'll start with the good news. It's a free upgrade for Windows 10 users. So if you have Windows 10 uh, or if you have a Windows 7 Pro, um, you're able to, you'll likely be able to upgrade to Windows 11. Now, none of this is in concrete yet. I imagine a lot of this is still rolling out, but... It's going to be a free upgrade for Windows 10 users. Now, Windows 11 is only officially supported on 8th gen and newer Intel Core processors along, alongside Apollo Lake and newer Pentium and Celeron processors. And so there's going to be a wide plethora of hardware that Windows 11 simply isn't going to support. They have a tool that you can download and check to see if your system uh, can, can run on Windows 11. But uh, if it doesn't, uh, you don't have 
You don't have much of a choice. They're also adding Android support to Windows 11. Now, this is the stuff that should, this is where, this is the kind of stuff that should make you kind of take a step back, right? So first of all, if they don't like your hardware, then you just can't install the software. There may be nothing actually preventing you from running Windows 11 on the, on, on older hardware, but Microsoft doesn't want you to do it. And so they own the product. So you can't adding Android support to Windows 11 speaks volumes. It says that Microsoft is taking another stab at mobile. And they, they understand, because it's failed three times now, that they're not in a position to make a better uh, Windows mobile apps. And so what they're going to do is they're just going to hand that off to Google, much like they did with their Edge browser. Hey, Google, write the code for us. We re-ran it, put some telemetrics in there so that we can get some information. And then we just ship it as our own product. That's essentially what we're working towards here with Android support in Windows 11. I also think they're trying to capture the development audience. Now, Android apps will live alongside Windows apps in the Microsoft Store and installed Android apps will live alongside Windows apps in desktops and notebooks. They are going to be distributing the apps not through the Play Store, but instead through Amazon Market. Again, another step back. Instead of the Play Store, and Anybody can speculate as to why Microsoft is doing this, but they're clearly working with Amazon to distribute apps inside of Windows that are primarily from a Google platform, Android, right? And so you draw whatever conclusions you want from that. That makes me nervous. It makes me nervous that Microsoft is clearly trying to separate themselves from the open ecosystem that exists, well, calling Google an open ecosystem might be a bit of a stretch, but the, the idea that we can have an, an F-Droid store that distributes APKs, much like we can have a Google Play store, they're clearly interested in having an app store. They're just not interested in Google controlling it. And one has to wonder what kind of agreement they have with Amazon to make that work. Now for the really bad parts. If you were thinking about switching to Linux, here's, here's what should send you over the edge. If you're working in a home environment and you have the home edition, they're now going to require an internet connection and a Microsoft account in order to log into your computer. Did you hear that? You can no longer create a local account on the home version of Windows 11. You're going to be required to have a Microsoft account, to register with the company, have an active internet connection, to be able to log into a computer that you just brought home from Best Buy. You go in, you spend four or 500 bucks, comes with Windows 10 Home or Windows 11 Home. You bring it home, you turn it on. I want to log in. You Are you paying for an internet connection? Because if you're not paying for an internet connection, then you can't use this new computer. Have you created a Microsoft account? Have you given us information? If you've not created a Microsoft account and given us information, you can't log in. And that should be terrifying to you. Now, additionally... They've made some minor changes. They moved the start menu to the center because they're they're trying to focus on mobile. And they have a new widgets app that at the moment is hideous, but maybe that's just because they it's not been officially released. But it has customized data streams. Again, news, feed, weather. If Windows 10 was a telemetry disaster, you can only imagine what Windows 11 is going to look like. Mandatory online accounts. You can't have a local account on the home edition. It's ridiculous. One of the other things that they're requiring is they're mandatory, they're mandating a TPM 2.0 hardware in Windows 11. And so at first that people hear that and they go, Oh, trusted platform module. That's great. I like security in my computer. I would very much like to know that there's a hardware chip that's dealing with security. Okay. Hold your horses. The platform is, is what is allowing 
places like Google and Microsoft to control things like Android and Xbox, respectively, right? You don't have administrative access to your iPhone. Apple has that, okay? And so when WikiLeaks app gets removed from the Apple uh, Store and the Google Play Store, you don't have much of a say in it because at the end of the day, it's not your platform. It's their platform, and they'll make a decision, okay? There's a case right now uh, where Apple is in court arguing because a guy said, hey, it's very unclear and very dishonest for Apple to lock me out of my iTunes account, and I had, I don't know how much, thousands, thousands of dollars he had in iTunes content. And they said, well, even though you bought the content on iTunes, obviously it remains our property. You didn't actually think you had access to that for your whole, forever, did you? And he said, well, sure I did. I didn't rent it. I bought it. And Apple goes, no, 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 no. That's our content. We own that. We decide if you can have access to your Apple account. It doesn't matter what you bought on our platform, right? So there's already precedent that precedent for this and that guy's fighting a legal battle to get that sorted out microsoft has no ability today to do that because to a large degree if you just take a copy of an operating system and install it on your local machine it's still your computer just your computer with their operating system this is where the 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 tpm requirement is where this starts to change because the tpm along with suitable firmware is critical to measuring the state of your device and what I mean by that is a boot state. So in particular, you can attest to a remote party that your machine is in a non-rooted state. And so it's very sim- similar to the way that Widevine L1 works on Android devices. A third party can then choose whether or not to serve you content based on the trust that they have for your hardware. And so all of a sudden, everything may someday start to revolve around this trust factor of your PC. So imagine this. You log into Netflix. You click on the show you want to watch. You want to stream it in 4K. Your hardware can handle it, but the trust factor of your hardware is too low. Too bad. You're going to have to settle for the 720p stream because we can't have an untrusted device. It might be watching an instance of Linux with KVM. And then we can't risk you pirating and getting around all of our DRM stuff. TPMs have a unique key burned into them at the manufacturer time called an an endorsement key. And those unique keys are unique per TPM chip. And so those keys are then cryptographically tied to the vendor who issued them. And so because of that, the TPM uniquely identifies your system anywhere in the world. So content distributors can pick and say, this TPM vendor I trust, this TPM vendor I don't trust. And so what we wind up with is another form of, of DRM or another way to implement DRM on your PC. And so all of this is very, very helpful to the software manufacturer, very helpful to the PC manufacturer, not so helpful to the PC owner. And so all I can tell you is if you're one of the people that ha- that were considering, uh, if you're considering moving from Windows, a, window, a Windows platform over to Linux, if that's something that you'd ever looked into in the past and said, yeah, I, I work full time in Windows, but someday I would like to make the transition over to Linux. It There was a time when Windows, I think it was Windows 8 came out, and it was a colossal disaster. And right at that time, Unity decided to switch their uh, their 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 desktop environment up, and they, they changed to the Unity desktop from the GNOME 2 standard. And so a lot of people that I believe would have potentially switched over to Linux at that point went, that's a mess over there. They don't even have just basic stuff just still isn't working because everybody started over again. And shortly after that, we had the same same problem again with GNOME 3 and KDE rebranded and all of that. And so we missed a couple of critical 
junctures where we where a lot of people could have potentially got on board running Linux full time and they didn't. And that was largely because we weren't at a stable place today. I would tell you is a totally different story. I work with people all the time that we go in and say, Hey, you might consider running a different operating system than windows. I don't think you need windows to run your business and the people that we do it, do that for. And it, and it does require a little bit of coaxing and it does require uh, a little bit of handholding and it does require a little bit of support because again, you're asking people to step outside a well-known ecosystem. So there is that. I'll be upfront with you about that. But once they do, people don't go back. They just don't. I have had so many customers and clients that they'll bring a personal computer in and they'll say, this isn't working. You fix, you maintain all of our work ones. Could you clean it up for me? And of course, first thing I say is, what do you do with it? I browse the internet, I browse Facebook, I play some games, listen to some music, browse Netflix. Okay. Do you do anything outside of Firefox or Chrome? Not really. Okay. I have a software that we could install and it's not virus free per se, because anything that can execute code could execute malicious code, but there are far less threat vectors inside of the Linux operating system than there are on Windows. Additionally, it's not going to cost you anything and it'll probably drastically speed up uh, your computer. So that's something you're interested in. Nine out of 10 times, the answer is yes. The remaining one time you live boot it and show it to them and people's eyes light up and go, why have I not heard of this? Why is nobody using this? This is incredible. And you send those people home and let them dig into it for a while. And they come back and say, oh, this is fantastic. I sent, I work with a guy at the radio station and he's a news director and he's, he's getting up there in age. And uh, so not a person that is super tech savvy or plays with this stuff. And, and same story, right? Computer's running slow. Don't know what I'm going to do. Can you look at it? Okay, bring it in. Take, he brings it in the station. I take a look at it. It's running dog slow. You push the power button. It's like a 10-minute boot up time to get into this god old version of Windows Vista. And I said, okay, we're going to wipe this off. We're going to upgrade an SSD or put put Kubuntu on there. And I'm going to send it home with you and see, see what you think. And so I did. And the next day he comes back and says, could you set up my printer? Because I'm going to need my printer set up. And that was when I started to get a little nervous. I think, oh, man, I wonder if his printer is going to be supported. So I ask what model printer he is. Oh, I have an HP printer. Okay, well, that should be fine. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, you know, just let me know and I'll remote in. So he goes home. Don't hear from him. Next day he comes back and I said, did you not call me for your printer? I was going to do that for you last night. Is there something come up or is there a different time I could do it? And he says, well, I was going to, but, uh, you know, I just clicked on a little button there and typed in printer and printer dialog popped up and plugged the USB cord in and asked me to install and I clicked next a bunch of times and it said print a test page and that printed and then I went back into my word processor and uh, printed out what I needed to print. So I, I got it installed myself. Thanks though. And I thought that is, that's a milestone. When you can, when you can send a, 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 a preloaded computer home with someone and they're able to on their own install the software that they want, install the hardware that they want to use it with webcams and printers and scanners and those kinds of things have a decent enough experience to the point that when they come back, they say that runs so much better than my old computer did. It's unbelievable. So in his case, in, in, in his case, it was because it was a, it was just a terribly old version of windows. And there was a bunch of crud that had collected in there. Windows 10 provides a new security threat. And that's the telemetrics that come with windows 10. Again, with the beginning of the crunch on your freedom, windows 11 takes that one step further. Now you're at a point where you are 100% beholden to Microsoft. And don't kid yourself. They're not shooting themselves in the foot with, with the pro edition of Windows 10 because if they required an online account for Windows 10, 
they would – well, first of all, they would just stamp out a huge swath of organizations that just wouldn't use it on principle alone. But aside from that, they would they would put a bullet in, in, in the golden foot of Active Directory. And so they're not going to do that. But make no mistake, when they get to the point where everybody has switched over to Azure and – you can run Active Directory in, in, in the Azure cloud, which you can absolutely do. Microsoft is going to make this push, and they are going to require you to register for an account, uh, much like they've done with Office 365, much like Google does with all of their suites. We are we are quickly moving as a society to software as a service. And this is – Windows was one of the last holdouts where everything was still local, even if it was proprietary, and that's about to change. And so – we need to change with it. We need to have answers. And I believe that answer today is a GNU slash Linux desktop operating system. So I invite you to check out Linux Delta if you want some reviews on what operating systems people are using for what purposes. And uh, then go try some out. Spin them up in a VM or even install them. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. The show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can find the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter at Asknoahshow. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week. <laughs>